Hello and welcome to the live stream for the 17th of March, 2023, the last one for the week, and it's St. Patrick's Day. You may hear throughout this the mournful wails of a cat that has been kept outside. Uh, hopefully it doesn't come through on the microphone, but she is protesting about not being allowed into the room. Uh, like all cats, for some reason, closed doors are something they object to, <laughs> be that as it may. It is St. Patrick's Day uh, here in Australia. It's possibly only the 16th of March for other people. Uh, we always tend to get to certain times before the rest of the world, given the existence of time zones around the globe, of course. Uh, St. Patrick, why was St. Patrick chosen as the patron saint of Ireland? Oh, possibly an apocryphal tale. He explained the nature of the Christian God as being one God, like a clover, but in three parts, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. So we have these different aspects to this particular God. He wasn't um, three separate gods, but rather one God with three personalities, so to speak. Uh, the United Kingdom... Um, is kind of like that in a sense. Well, it's not three, but it's four. Four countries in one nation, I suppose we might say. Um, you have Ireland, England, Scotland, and Wales. It wasn't until I moved there that I realised that uh, there were these differences between the United Kingdom, Britain, the British Isles, England even. That's how naive I was uh, before I, I moved there back in my 20s. For a year, I didn't. I honestly didn't realise that England <laughs> was a separate thing to Britain. I thought these things were synonyms for each other, and the United Kingdom. I just didn't know. I was completely ignorant. Um, I was a teacher over there, and um, just asking some school kids, they didn't know either. <laughs> um, I guess it's something that people pick up culturally as they go on um, throughout childhood. At, in in England and Scotland and Ireland and Wales, the differences between these different uh, terms for those land masses over there and things. So the United Kingdom is the four places. England, that's the big bit. <laughs> Northern Ireland, I should say, when it comes to the United Kingdom, Scotland and Wales, Scotland right at the top, and Wales over to the west, uh, the north and the west. Uh, Ireland has St. Patrick as their patron saint. Uh, England gets St. George on the, the 23rd of April. St. George <laughs> possibly made up out of, out of whole cloth. <laughs> In other words, a completely fictional saint. Perhaps. After all, what was St. George famous for? Slaying the last dragon. <laughs> Were there any dragons? So if his most famous feat was something that could not possibly have been accomplished, uh, there's a question mark hanging over the reality of St. George. Now, Wales has St. David on the 1st of March. And Scotland has St. Andrew's Day on November the 30th. Uh, the English cross for St. George, St. George's cross, forms part of the United Kingdom's flag. If you've ever wondered why the flag looks the way that it does, the Union Jack, in other words, it's because you have this combination of crosses. St. George's Cross, the red bit. I think the blue bit is for um, Scotland and Wales is also represented there as, as well. But Scotland has the, the blue bit as well. Um, and so these are, the, these are the saints for uh, the United Kingdom's various countries. And today just happens to be St. Patrick's Day. And as I say, Possibly a, a <laughs> um, an apocryphal tale. Uh, in terms of St. George, um, uh, St. George is often invoked by the great Douglas Murray. Douglas Murray who talks about um, St. George in retirement syndrome. <laughs> St. George in retirement syndrome is where people striving for equality achieve the outcome they want, win the battle, defeat the dragon, and then either look around for smaller dragons to slay or, in the worst instances, cease to stop swinging their sword but instead take on battles with imaginary dragons. 
You can decide for yourself today whether or not, you know, for example, the battles on gender, sexuality, equality, more broadly, certainly equality before the law in the justice system as a matter of law, whether those battles have been won, whether throughout the Western world, we do have equality before the law. And so therefore, people who are continuing to battle for equality before the law, if that's what they're doing, if they're still engaging in those battles, are they engaged like St. George swinging their sword at thin air because there are no dragons left to slay? It's not the same people, obviously, today fighting for certain things as they were in the past. But in the past, people were fighting for, for example, quite rightly, absolutely, should have fought for women to have the vote, for there to be no gender or sex-based discrimination in the legal system anywhere as a matter of law. When it comes to things that the state can impose, we should have no distinction between different kinds of people. That's a form of discrimination. It could be sexism or racism, homophobia, etc. So those things should be eviscerated. But once they are, once they are eviscerated as a matter of law and the protests continue, we wonder what the voting public can do to remedy a thing that is not there in the law. <laughs> so this is St. George in retirement syndrome, which we need to be careful of. It was, I think, um, President Biden who only, I noticed, this week put out a tweet about, or in response to a, a, a child had written him a letter about how women get paid less than men. Uh, and asking Joe Biden to do something about that. So what can Joe Biden do? He's a politician. He's a lawmaker. He's one of the people who can pass laws or regulations. Is there a law or regulation that says women must get paid less than men? If there is, that should be corrected as a matter of urgency. That's discrimination. That's rank sexism. But if there is nothing there in the books that a lawmaker can change, then his promising to do something about this would seem to be, well, misdirected at best, deceitful at worst. Um, there's often, you know, statistics claim women get paid 70 cents on the dollar for men, but not for doing precisely the same work. And insofar as it is exactly the same work, where is this happening? And why is this happening? And what does it mean to say exactly the same work? Can you compare two CEOs of two different companies? Some companies are larger. Some people work longer hours. People have talked about this before at great length. People make different decisions throughout life. But if there is a law <laughs> saying that women can only get paid 70 cents on the dollar for men, that clearly needs to be changed. Within agreements that occur within companies, typically speaking, there are laws against paying different people different wages for doing precisely the same thing, certainly based upon gender. I know that happened in Australia. It is simply illegal to pay two people that are doing the same job different amounts, except for matters of seniority. You know, this happens in teaching, for example. Two teachers in classrooms next door to each other could be getting paid quite different things for doing exactly the same thing because one of them has been in the job longer. It's a bizarre system. All you have to do is to sit around for long enough. I think the police are much the same. And each year that goes by, you get paid a little bit more <laughs> just for hanging around. Uh, not for improving your performance. I guess on the assumption that you've improved your performance or something like that. If on the aggregate, the statistics show that men are getting paid more than women, what is the deeper explanation? Are there such things as danger money? Men overwhelmingly work in jobs like, well, I shouldn't say overwhelmingly, as a proportion of the workforce, disproportionately, men do things like mining, arduous, hard labour, bricklaying. Not to say that no woman does this. Woman does this. 
But if you have hardly any females represented in these jobs, where in, for example, mining, a premium is paid because of the danger and being away from home and all that kind of thing. Now, this happens in Australia. People work extremely remotely. When I say remotely, not just behind a computer, I mean in the middle of nowhere in Australia. And there's a vast parts of Australia that are kind of nowhere in that sense. Far, far from, uh, never mind cities, even small towns where some mines happen to be. And... People go deep underground in dangerous conditions and get paid a lot of money for doing so. And so if you average out that kind of thing compared to, let's say, childcare, where in childcare, infant care, the overwhelming majority of the workforce is women, no wonder there's going to be a discrepancy in the average pay just comparing these two populations. Now, repeat for all the other life choices that people make throughout their lives. So what would... Joe Biden do about something like that? Well, the government, I suppose, could insist that everyone, regardless of what you do, mining or childcare, get paid the same. That would equalise things. Then we'd have a quality of outcome, as people talk about. Which is precisely what, of course, places like North Korea do. Okay. Many of the rest of us think we shouldn't keep trying to slay this particular dragon of inequality. That what we mean by equality is equality before the law. Is everyone being treated by the state in the same way? Because if that holds, we're done. That's it. If in society there are inequities that exist there, then so long as the state provides the conditions where people can pursue opportunities, that's all the role that the state has. Then private industry and people of goodwill will employ the best people for the best jobs based upon their skills, knowledge, and you know, personality criteria. No one would want to have a corporation which becomes known for unequal employment practices. And by the way, as many other people have observed, if women really were routinely able to be paid less for doing exactly the same job as men, why wouldn't all corporations immediately fire most of their male workforce and take on female workforce at a much reduced cost? Because they wouldn't have to pay them as much. If that was really going on, that's what would happen. These evil corporations that are only interested in profit should do that. They don't do that because... It's just not true that women get paid less than men for doing the same job. Women choose to do certain kinds of jobs. Men choose to do certain kinds of jobs. Women choose to work certain hours. Men choose to work certain hours. It's as simple as that. In the Western world, where there are already laws ensuring that you are not allowed to pay people different amounts for doing the same thing based upon, for example, just their gender. And many people more knowledgeable about the issue than I have spoken on that over and again. Okay, today I'm just going to go through uh, a series of questions and various other things that I've been asked over the last few days that I haven't gotten to. From Patreon, I have a supporter of the podcast. Go to www.brethall.org uh, if you'd like to support my ongoing endeavours here at TopCast in explaining the work of David Deutsch, worldview that we get from Popper, Deutsch, and related thinkers about optimism, progress, and an infinity before us of knowledge creation, <laughs> and how we are only constrained by our imaginations, which are unlimited, and physics, which doesn't provide much of a limitation on what we can do and the amount of wealth we can create. So if you're interested in this kind of thing, yeah, feel free to support via Patreon, as Andrew Gleave has done, and he has asked me, quote, explaining the seen in terms of the unseen is what people do and what current AIs don't. In fact, current, AIs, current AI explains the seen in terms of the seen during training. They are exceptionally good at connecting the dots between the mountain of existing knowledge they were trained on and have already shown how tremendously valuable they will be for humanity. 
However, conjecturing the unseens seems to be what seems to be what creativity is all about, generating new abstractions. Maybe it's many people's mistaken belief that induction will get us there versus its conjecture all the way down. Thoughts? End quote. Well, not only has Andrew asked a question there, but I think has provided an excellent explanation of precisely my view on these kind of matters. Um, yes. And it's a, it's a lovely way to put it, and I've said similar things myself, but not quite exactly the same way. It is true. We explain the scene in terms of the unseen. What do we see? We see sunlight. We see light in general. We see sunlight. And just by interpreting the sunlight, by passing it through our spectroscopes, a long chain of causal reasoning, an explanation, takes us back to the surface of this vast sphere of hydrogen and helium gas, which is the sun. And our explanation continues to take us from the surface there, deep, deep into the core where we have no hope ever of seeing what's going on there. What is happening there is unseen. We explain the light that we do see on a bright, sunny day as coming from an unseen place, which is where the interesting part of the scientific explanation is really going to provide an account of physical reality. We're not so much interested in, 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 in just explaining that light is falling upon the earth. We want to know how it is that those objects in the sky that we call the sun and the stars are producing the light in the first place. These unseen reactions, fusion reactions, deep in the core of the star, not only in practice, but even in principle, cannot be observed. In principle, I say, because to see something means, well, it should mean, it should mean something like, being able to look at something, having an instrument, whether it's your eyes or some sort of artificial instrument, for being able to at least collect the photons as they've reflected off that thing. No instrument can survive in the sun. <laughs> it can't survive near the surface of the sun, much less into the core of the sun. There is no such substance. All substances, doesn't matter what they're made of, some titanium tantalum tungsten alloy with a melting point of whatever you like it goes up to about probably i don't know 3000 4000 at the most kelvin but have no hope surviving on the surface much less in the core of the sun where it's 15 million kelvin so we can't put instruments there we only ever by the way even if we could we'd still have only indirect evidence but here we have very indirect evidence by interpreting light that falls upon the earth that has been emitted from the surface of the sun. And we infer and explain to the core of the sun where we don't see anything. Okay, so that's that, that's what we do. What does ChatGPT and these AIs do? They get to see vast amounts of data in their training. And that forms the library that they can call on in order to answer questions. So it's all seen and they can mash up the scene. So it's simply explaining whatever question you ask it, giving you a response in terms of what it has already seen, never going beyond what is there in its library. And so that's the, the real kicker. Can it ever come up with something not in its library? Something it has never seen. Explain something seen in terms of something it has never seen. Well, that's the real test. And I would say no. So I agree completely with Andrew. Um, and it's a lovely way for him to put it. Conjecturing the unseen seems to be what creativity is about. Creating new abstractions. Yes. Yes, Andrew. That is exactly right. Andrew goes on to say, quote, Finally, the above made me think of the every point is a boundary point quote. Current AIs operate within the boundary of a graph of knowledge. Humans do not. They can add new vertices to the graph via conjectured explanations or abstractions. Knowledge grows along the edges that connect vertices, and thus we grow our knowledge. It's maybe not a great model, but it dovetails with how neural networks function, and Xenophanes 
for all is but a woven web of guesses, end quote. Yes, I love what Andrew says here. That's exactly right. Uh, current AIs operate within a fixed boundary. They lack imagination is what they lack. What is this thing, our imagination? I don't know. It's some kind of capacity to vary what we have in our minds, the content we already have here, by a little or a lot, by completely contradicting what we think we know, postulating fanciful worlds and the way the, this world could be, possibly. It's more than just envisaging what's physically possible. It's beyond that. And so therefore, as some people sometimes try and say, well, is it us seeing another part of the multiverse? Well, it can't be that because we can imagine violations of the laws of physics, which the multiverse does not permit. So, and although all, um, all physically possible fiction is true in the multiverse somewhere, Anytime you imagine the spacecraft that travels beyond the speed of light through space, you're imagining something that can't possibly happen in the multiverse anywhere, in any universe, because that would require different laws of physics. Our laws of physics do not allow material things to go beyond the speed of light, according to our best explanation. Okay. So we can imagine that. Um, can chat GPT routinely imagine things beyond its uh beyond the library that it's been you know, trained upon and then calls upon in order to answer your questions no no it's not conjecturing new abstractions okay going on um professor brian keating who i believe is a an astronomer he surveyed on twitter his followers with that old chestnut, <laughs> that old chestnut of a question, which was mathematics is A, discovered, B, invented, and then he said something else as well, you know, C, too hard or whatever. But basically he was asking, is mathematics discovered or invented? This goes back, I don't know how long. When you put the question that way, is mathematics discovered or invented? It confuses what you mean by the word mathematics. Do you mean, it's like the laws of physics at times. When people say the laws of physics, do you mean the ultimate laws of physics that govern physical reality as a matter of absolute final pristine truth? Or do you mean our understanding of those laws of physics, the knowledge we have and the explanations we have that imperfectly capture that somewhat ineffable thing, which is the ultimate and perfect pristine laws of physics? The difference between the subject matter of the subject and knowledge of that subject matter. Particle physics is a, a nice, neat way of thinking about this. Particle physics ostensibly is about what are the fundamental constituents of matter, fundamental, the most basic building blocks of matter if you break everything down. Okay, so we have a theory at the moment. It's called the standard model. It invokes things like leptons, which include electrons, the quarks, which are the building blocks of protons and neutrons, the bosons, things like photons, which are force carriers. Okay, so it, the standard model contains all these things. And that's the state of play at the moment, the state of matter, if you'd like to say. As far as we understand, those things are fundamental. You can't take a quark and split it in half. You can't take an electron and split it in half. It's a fundamental indivisible entity. Now, is that true? Well, there's quantum field theory that says, well, look, maybe these things are all excitations of the field, which is more fundamental still. But even then, you know, can you have something deeper than that? Are there particles within particles? Well, our knowledge of matter at the moment comes down to what the standard model says. But our knowledge of is different to what the ultimate answer to that question is. Is there an end to finding the constituents of matter. Is it the case that, just to be provocative, quarks are excitations of a field, so in some sense they're wave-like, but those waves actually are 
the vibrations of smaller particles still, which are caused by waves that are smaller still, and so on, you keep going on forever. There is no end to this search, or is there just a brute fact of the matter where the electron is fundamental? Or some smaller particle, 10 theories down the road, which is the smallest thing? Well, whatever the truth of that is, that's the fact of the matter. And our knowledge of that is, stands apart from it. Okay? Ultimate reality and our knowledge of reality are two separate things. So I've made that point before, and I've more than once throughout this week on these live streams. What Professor Brian Keating is asking there is ambiguous in a similar way, because mathematics, do you mean, and I responded, the perfect abstract truths of mathematics or do you mean a knowledge of those perfect abstract truths? They're two separate things. So I said, this age-old question is always ambiguous. We can put this way. The perfect abstract truths of mathematics become imperfectly known over time, discovered, by the invention, by the physical process of objective knowledge creation, knowledge invention, if you like. So both of these two things are working in concert. And so the succinct way of putting that, I said, was mathematical truth is discovered by inventing knowledge about it. So when you say is mathematics invented or discovered, it's both because mathematical truth is out there and then we discover knowledge about it. My trope example I always go to is go to Wikipedia, look up what the biggest prime number is. There is a number, there are infinitely many primes bigger than that. That's a proof by Euclid. There are infinitely many primes. So the next biggest one is out there. Where is it? Well, that question demands a, an answer in physical space for an abstract entity. So there's no point asking where is it. But we can say it exists, the next highest prime number. So we need to discover it by searching. But even once we can write down that next biggest prime number, that writing down is an invention of knowledge to capture it. We're creating knowledge about that abstract thing. What is this abstract thing, by the way? You might as well just linger on that for a moment. You know, my, again, <laughs> go-to way of talking about this is if you were to write down different representations for the number two, even me just saying two, T-W-O, that is, in sound waves, a representation of that abstract number two. If I was to write down the letters, T-W-O, that would be an abstract representation of the number two. If I was to write the numeral for two, whether in... Indian Arabic numerals, as everyone is familiar with, or two strokes side by side as Roman numerals. Two dots, all of these things represent two. If I wrote eight over four, if I wrote five take away three, there are an infinite number of ways that I could write down symbols to capture this number two. But at no point would I write down the number two. I would just write representations of the number two. I would write symbols or, as people say, numerals. Numerals aren't numbers, but are representations of numbers. What's abstraction got to do about this? If you write down you know, 10 different representations of this number two, then what you can do is abstract out the number two. That's what an abstraction is. You, you look at what is common between all these things, and what is common to them all is two, the number, which you can't write. But it is the thing that really exists over and above all of them, that all of them are representing the number two. Five take away three is the number two. TWO is the number two. Two strokes is the number two. And so on, ad infinitum. The abstraction is the thing that you learn having written down these numbers. In fact, I think as David Deutsch says in the beginning of infinity, numerals were discovered before numbers. People tallying, you know, counting how many sheep were in the field by you know, drawing strokes on rocks or something, had numerals. 
And they thought the numerals were just, you know, the strokes, the marks were there to represent physical things, physical things representing physical things. The strokes representing the number of sheep out there. Keep a tally of them. Not until later did people realize, okay, this counting thing is about something more than sheep and stuff and physical stuff. It indicates an abstract reality. We can abstract away from this system of counting numbers which are independent of any representation of them and have curious complexity about them, things like prime numbers, an unpredictable sequence of atomic numbers, the combination of which can make any other number that you can think of. Sort of a remarkable fact that would not have been expected and often isn't expected by people. It's still amazing to me. But for any number that you can write down, that number can be written as a combination of prime numbers. The prime numbers really are atomic in that sense. They're simple. And it's combinations of them that give you everything else. Yeah. Okay, so that's Professor Brian Keaton and the misconception about whether or not mathematics is invented or discovered. I would say the misconceived question, the misconceived question. Okay, next. Also from Twitter, um, I was re-listening to, and I'm generating some more content on, the conversation between Naval and David Deutsch, the, the first of the conversations that have um, been released there. And there's a wonderful, there's a whole bunch of wonderful things that David and Naval say in that. But one thing that uh, David said in that conversation they had released recently, go to the Naval's website to hear it if you haven't already heard it, the conversation between David and Naval. But at one point, um, well, David says, quote, to explain what happens on the surface of the earth, you need to know everything in the universe that's knowable, end quote. And this was his explanation of the difference between human beings and everything else in the physical universe. That human beings are special because in order to understand them, you need to understand everything else. And so I, I've explained that quote in my own tweet by saying, because, so why would you need to know everything else in the universe that's knowable to explain what's happening on the surface of the earth? I said, because earth is where the people are. To understand people means understanding what they understand and are working on, doing and on for everything in physics, philosophy, and everything. So David uses the example of if you want to understand why, you know, this one fellow Einstein, you know, got this medal, um, uh, which he did. He got the Nobel Prize. He went to Stockholm. Why did why did these monkeys in Stockholm give this monkey Einstein gold? Well, if you wanted to really understand that, why that's happening, you would have to understand this guy Einstein. He went over there. He got the the Nobel Prize for the the photoelectric effect. So you'd need to understand the photoelectric effect. You'd have to understand, okay, well, this guy Einstein, he's a physicist. What's you know, what why is he studying this photoelectric thing, electric effect thing? Because he's a physicist. What's a physicist? Someone who studies physics. May he also happens to have studied general relativity, so he'd be led down a, a, a trail of general relativity. So in order to understand Einstein, you're automatically understanding a whole bunch of physics. <laughs> and you're wanting to do that because. Well, you wanted to understand why these people are giving that person gold. Ah, it's an award. It's an award for science. Um, so you're beginning to understand the culture. To understand people means to understand everything. To understand the surface of the earth means to understand everything. Because for any one person, you know, this one might be a philosopher. Ah, what does a philosopher do? What is this philosopher doing? Oh, they're looking at morality. What's morality? You've got to look at that. Uh, this one's a, a mathematician. Okay, to understand what they're doing, We've got to understand mathematics and so on for everything. And so this is why David says to understand humans means understanding everything else because that's what humans are trying to do, to understand everything else. You can never get to a final understanding of them. It's much the same as being unable to get to a final understanding of the universe itself. That's why I like Jerron Lenier's quip that a human, a person, is an infinite well of mystery. I think David and Jerron come at 
the ineffable nature of the person from different directions. I'd say Jerome's probably um, sometimes less precise, but it still it captures the same kind of idea, same kind of idea that people are infinitely complex. David would go on to say, why? Because they consider explanations of everything and everything has infinite complexity. Um, uh, David responded to me to say that, um, and this is not true of any other location that we know of in the universe, but it will soon be true of the moon and then Mars. Yes. And so as people spread throughout the solar system, the galaxy, the universe, those places become unable to be explained in terms of just the physical forces. As people spread throughout the cosmos, the job of the astrophysicist becomes ever more difficult. The job of the general scientist becomes ever more difficult because to explain the processes that happen there uh, in full, I say in full, provisedly, advisedly, you would need to have an understanding of human beings, which is not the job of the astrophysicist, of course. It might very well be in the distant future that astrophysics becomes so good at what it does it allows people to routinely control the rate at which stars burn. And so therefore, <laughs> to know something about how far uh, or the rate at which stars burn, you will need to know why people are choosing to affect the fusion rate, the, uh, the stellar fusion rate of stars. Then it doesn't become just a matter of astrophysics, but also one of psychology, <laughs> which is kind of a remarkable thing. Um, Thomas Shaddox has responded to David and said, um, if you knew everything that's knowable, would you be able to explain everything that happens on the surface of the earth? And I leapt in here, rudely, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I responded. I said, um, if the impossible obtains, then anything follows, including that. But we cannot know everything that's knowable. If we could, that would mean an end of progress. It would mean a complete solution that reveals no more problems, a solution of which we cannot ask. Why that? Okay, so uh, Thomas has asked, but if we knew everything that's knowable, then we could explain everything on the surface of the earth. Yeah, sure. But it's impossible to know everything that's knowable. So we can rule that out. But if, if you want me to grant the premise that you can know everything that's knowable, then yeah, sure, that follows. But then so does a whole bunch of other stuff as well because now you're in the realm of impossibility, I would say. You can't know everything that's knowable because that means having a complete picture of, well, having a complete picture of any one thing, I argue, entails having a complete picture of the whole. Because the whole <laughs> affects the individual parts of reality. There just is this necessary connection between everything. Even if it's just gravitational, our best explanation of gravity at the moment says that uh, it doesn't decay to zero. There's always an effect. Right? The curvature of space-time is, is, uh, stretches throughout space. It just gets ever smaller and smaller and smaller. Okay, quantum gravity might change that. Um, so we can't know everything that's knowable. If we could have a final explanation, a perfect, pristine explanation that was in some sense self-contained about anything, that would mean that explanation, that solution to the problem we had, itself reveals no more problems. But this is not the character of explanation that exists in our universe. Our universe is such that when you explain something, it allows you to see more. It opens up more questions. It reveals more problems. That's what happens. You don't reduce the number of problems and questions, you increase them by finding solutions. They're better problems to have, but they are more problems. And we should expect that to continue. Not that we'll find a solution one day which reveals why we've got no more questions to ask. In particular, we could always ask, why is that the case and not something else? Some people want to say, well, maybe it will be revealed that of mathematical necessity. <laughs> I don't buy that. Why is that mathematically necessary rather than just contingent 
The laws of physics could have been various other ways, for example. Why would you say they are necessary or necessarily the case? When people invoke that kind of argument, I think it's a, it's a faith claim. The laws of physics are the way they are of mathematical necessity. But there's nothing about them at the moment in their present form that says it's mathematically required they need to be that way. Uh, throughout Twitter, um, I'm not choosing anyone in particular here, uh, but a number of times the same sentiment arose on Twitter, which is about the principle of optimism, or optimism in general, as being about whether or not we should say things can get better versus things will get better. And I think this is a, an incorrect framing of the way in which to understand the problem of the soluble notion. It's certainly the case that we can't argue as optimists that things must get better, that it is inevitable. Inevitable is the key. We can't say it's inevitable things will get better. So put your feet up and relax because things must get better. The universe, the laws of the universe are such that things just irrevocably get better. That's the story of the past and that should happen in the future. That's induction. But I think we can be a little bit stronger rather a lot of the time than merely saying things can get better. Although that's true, of course, things can get better. I think we can argue something less than things must get better, but more than only things can get better, which is why I say sometimes, I'm happy to say myself, without embarrassment, that things will get better. Is this a prophecy? For any one particular thing, it can be. If I say we will find the cure for all cancers, well, firstly, I haven't put a when on there, but as soon as I did, that would absolutely be a prophecy. If I say within the next 10 years, we will, we will have a cure for breast and prostate cancer. Prophecy. I've got no reason for thinking that. There's no good explanation behind that. Uh, I'm guessing it knowledge yet to be created. Can't do it. It's prophetic. It's not reasonable. However, I think that broadly speaking, if we have an understanding of what people are, what civilization is, what we tend to do, whether conditions are good or bad, then we can make claims about the world getting better and an expectation the world will get better. To say that the world will get better, I don't think is a prophecy. Say it's inevitable that absolutely the world will get better, could be. The world will get better because people want to solve their problems. That won't change tomorrow or next week. We can never reach a condition where people will sit back and be satisfied with their lives. They will always want to create more knowledge. They will always want to create more wealth. They will always be in a problematic circumstance. Our civilization is a resilient civilization. It is stable while undergoing rapid progress. And as more progress happens, we want more rapid progress still. And this fact about us shouldn't be expected to change. And for these reasons, because people will want to solve their problems and have the expectation that every new generation will live longer than the previous generation, that every new generation will thrive in a world that is better than that of their parents and grandparents, that the free ubiquitous distribution of knowledge and hopefully of energy, not to mention all of the other resources that we use and computation, that the costs of all of these things on the aggregate will go down as a proportion of people's income, that it will become next to the price of mere raw materials to give everyone access to all the knowledge in the world, carried in their pocket. Because this sort of thing will just continue and there's no reason to think it will stop, then on the whole, I think we're entitled to say things will get better. 
This is not a reason to put our feet up. Things will get better because we won't put our feet up and we shouldn't expect anyone will. So it's, I think it's sometimes it can be, we can be a little stronger than merely things can get better in certain moods. Now, if you take that as things must get better or it's inevitable that things will get better, that's different. I think we occupy a part of physical reality where we have the knowledge of how to make things better and people will continue to make that choice because why would they do otherwise? What is the best explanation of our present circumstance? That tomorrow we will continue to want to strive to make things better or not? And if we can explain what people are doing as problem solvers and knowledge creators in terms of moving from worse problems to better problems, then again, that's an argument that things will get better. So I think we're entitled to say that because we're entitled to say certain things about people broadly speaking. There'll be blips, there'll be backtracks, there'll be um, wrong turns. So it's not inevitable, but, but the best explanation of what's going on with people at any point since the beginning of the Enlightenment is they make things better because they choose to, and so, so we should expect them to continue to make the same choices to make things better, faster. And so that will only become more true over time. The person doing this job of, <laughs> you know, having a, a, a platform where they explain optimism and progress in 100 years will only make that point more strongly still. <laughs> because over the next 100 years, things are going to ramp up far more rapidly and be far better than the last 100 years. And so it will only be more obvious that if I can make this conjecture now that things will get better, all the while admitting this is not a strict prediction. I'm not saying specifically what things will get better, just that people do this. Then in 100 years from now, whoever's doing a similar job to me, arguing for optimism, will have an easier time. We ought to point to me and say, hey, look, see, this guy, back when things were primitive and awful by the standards of today, even he was saying that things were going to get better. That poor denizen of the past with all the destruction and death and suffering and expense of living in that time <laughs> was somehow able to see how wonderful the world was. Well, look at us now. Look how good it is now, 100 years later. Should we expect things to stagnate tomorrow or get worse? No. What should we expect? We should expect things will get better. <laughs> they will be saying that more strongly, more loudly. And in fact, one would hope pessimism has large, largely been removed like a cancerous tumor that it is from society. And everyone will have the expectation of things getting better, which means that things will get better even faster because people won't be held back by the naysayers on the sidelines carping about resource use and inequality. They will understand that inequality is the very thing which allows for people to pursue separate interests. That's what you want. And if someone wants to work one day a week and someone wants to work seven days a week, we should expect different outcomes from a free society that allows that kind of thing. That's wonderful. Okay, that's that. Um, someone has asked me about a chat GPT answer. TP Reader, TP Reader on Twitter has said, quote, I'd be interested to hear your views on whether this summary of Popper's objective knowledge and evolutionary approach, one of my favorite books of all time, provided by chat GPT is any good or misses the point. Many thanks. Okay. So we've got TP Reader's um, question to chat GPT about Karl Popper's book. This book, Objective Knowledge, is a series of essays. More than like, you know, just a book chapter, so to speak. It's not like you, know, you pick this up and it reads like The Fabric of Reality, The Beginning of Infinity, or most other books. It's a collection of essays, which sometimes they repeat the content. Uh, sometimes they can seem completely different in terms of what they're talking about, one chapter from another. It's not like you have this... You know, they may not be regarded as completely connected, each essay. It starts off with the refutation of induction, among other things. 
he moves on throughout the book, you know, he talks about things like the uh, the bucket and the searchlight, which is about how the different visions of knowledge, you know, what we're doing. Are we, are we, are we filling up a bucket, which is our minds, when we create knowledge? Or are we searching? Is our, is our mind more of a searchlight? Um, okay, so ChatGPT has summarised after being given this prompt. The prompt was, could you please summarise Karl Popper's book, Objective Knowledge and Evolutionary Approach? And ChatGPT has said, I don't know if it's four or three. I've got a feeling this is 3.5. Okay, so it's pretty brief, so I'll read through it. Quote, Karl Popper's book, Objective Knowledge and Evolutionary Approach, presents a theory of knowledge that focuses on the evolutionary nature of scientific knowledge. Popper argues that scientific knowledge is not absolute, but rather it is an evolving process of conjecture and refutation. So far, so good. Let's keep going. Um, Popper believes that knowledge is always tentative and can never be proven true, but rather it can only be falsified. In other words, scientific theories are only provisionally accepted until they are proven false. Popper also argues that scientific theories can never be verified, but they can be tested and potentially falsified. End quote. Okay, we have to be careful here. ChatGPT is falling into the mistake that many do in thinking that Karl Popper or David Deutsch, etc., when they speak of knowledge, are only referring to scientific explanations. And we're not. They're not. Popper is not talking only about scientific explanations. Now, he's rightly famous for figuring out the line of demarcation between science and other stuff. The line of demarcation is, can you do an experimental test to decide between these two theories, these two claims about physical reality? If you can, then you're doing science. If you can't, you're doing something else. You're doing something else. You might be doing metaphysics, very useful. You might be doing mathematics, okay? There might not be some experimental test. There might be a proof. In morality, the two theories don't need to be experimentally tested in order to refute one of them. Um, only in science do we worry about this concept of falsifiability, and falsifiability is a term that is a uh, just a convenient way of talking about what happens during an experiment, a, a crucial test, an experimental crucial test, which is where you have two theories, you do an experiment, and it goes one way if one theory is false, and it goes the other way if the other theory is false. Now, ideally, it does go one way and shows that one of those theories is false. Okay, it does not comport with physical reality. The experimental test refutes that theory, it falsifies it. What do you mean falsifies? Doesn't that mean you've proven it true that it's false? No. What we say is the best explanation of what's going on, our statements about that theory are that it's false. Not forever, for all time, absolutely. Our best explanations, our fallible understanding is that that theory is false. Not false in the um, strict mathematical logical sense where we say once and for all we say our best explanation is that this theory can't explain the evidence can't explain the outcome of the experiment but this theory does okay so that's science but ChatGPT is immediately conflated we've gone from saying popper believes that knowledge is always tentative well firstly popper said he is not a philosopher of belief that's one thing so he was sort of it was very, this is why I try not to use this word believe or belief because it's a subjective part of psychology, whether you believe something or not. It has no bearing on you know, whether it's a good explanation, much less true. Uh, and so we don't need to, in knowledge, ever consider belief. Belief, insofar as it exists at all, and I'm not convinced, would be the domain of psychology, what people's beliefs are. But I'm, you know, broadly speaking, that's not a part of my wheelhouse of interests people's personal psychology i'm interested in knowledge some knowledge is represented inside of brains minds and so we can talk about that the objective criteria but whether you believe something or not has no bearing on whether it's a good explanation anyway that said popper believes that knowledge is always tentative okay tick all right and can never be proven true tick but rather it can only be falsified cross because, cross because, falsification properly considered is about the experimental 
outcome of a particular crucial test in science, the philosophy of science. But saying you have falsified a moral theory is, to my mind, and I'm not going to stick on, you know, Vic and Sidney and say, you can't use that word. You can use that word if you want. But my preference is, and I think Popper goes the same way here, is that falsification is a kind of refutation. You can refute, as in criticise, any theory that you like, mathematical, philosophical, political, economic, historical, scientific, whatever. But falsification is reserved for the specific kind of refutation or of criticism. We can criticise other theories without ever doing an experimental test, and I've talked about this a lot. You know, you get the, the grass cure is the famous one. You never have to test whether or not the grass is going to cure your cold. Okay? It is refutable on the basis that, refutable on the basis that it has no mechanism of action provided. How does the grass cure your cold? Without that, and someone just comes to you with it, you don't need to test it. You can refute it on that basis. That which is asserted without a good explanation can be denied without good explanation. I think Christopher Hitchens who said, that, that which can be asserted without evidence can be uh, denied without evidence, something like that. Not quite, not quite. Uh, for example, that very claim, what can be asserted without evidence can be denied without evidence, is itself a claim that comes without any evidence. Can we refute it? Can I deny it? I don't think so. <laughs> not on that basis, but on, on the basis that not everything comes down to evidence. Okay, anyway, ChatGPT goes on to say, quote, Popper's theory of knowledge is based on his concept of world three, which refers to the realm of human knowledge and ideas. Popper sees knowledge as evolving through the interaction of three worlds. The physical world, world one, uh, the world of our mental states, world two, and the world of objective knowledge that emerges from our mental states. Overall, Popper's book, Objective Knowledge and Evolutionary Approach, presents a view of scientific knowledge as a constantly evolving and improving process that is always subject to falsification and revision. End quote. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that last bit's okay. So scientific knowledge is constantly evolving and improving, always subject to falsification and revision. Okay. Take out falsification and true of all knowledge. Okay. All knowledge is a constantly evolving and improving process that is always subject to revision, refutation, and better conjectures. Um, yeah, so Popper's three worlds, you've got your physical world, then you've got your world of subjective experience, okay, the, the um, your world of feelings, your world of experience, what's going on inside of your skull, the privacy of your own mind, what the blue sky looks to you like, what chocolate ice cream tastes to you like, what the rose smells like to you. These are all things that are not part of the physical world. They're part of your subjective experience of the physical world. But they're also not part of our third-person objective knowledge of the world either. So this is why he has that second world. World one, the physical world of stuff that we want to explain. World two, our subjective states, which we also might want to explain. And world three, the world of objective explanations. There are these three worlds. And so they're all interconnected. Uh, world three, containing, which is the world of explanations, can contain explanations of the first two. We don't have good explanations of world two yet. You know, why do why does chocolate ice cream taste the way it does to you? How does it taste to you? Okay, all of that stuff would be an explanation of world two. Explanations of world one are you know, all the explanations of science and of mathematics and of history and so on and so forth. Explanations of world three is epistemology. So world three is explanations, and you can explain explanations. World three commenting on world three. <laughs> world one can constrain world three. World one has the laws of physics in it, which determine what it's possible for brains to do and therefore what minds can do. And therefore what explanations, what knowledge can actually be generated. So that's world one having an effect on world three. And so it goes. 
Um, there's a few questions on, let's see. Um, Twitter. But I think I think I might save I might save some of those for another time because I'm coming up to just over an hour now, um, and philosopher on YouTube has said, "Thank you for making this content." And my channel is criminally underrated. Well, that's very kind of you. Um, yes. Uh, so I think that'll do me for now. An hour on um, Friday. These things always take a little time to set up uh, and then record. And I've, I've been putting them out on audio as well. So they're going out via the regular podcast. Um, regular podcast is um, doing very well in terms of number of listens. We're well up over 600,000 downloads now, which is um, quite amazing. Um, but that will do me for now. Perhaps more live streams next week. I can't imagine I'll do one every single day next week. I want to put out a regular top cast that I've properly edited and so on and so forth. Um, and again, if you'd like to support this endeavor, feel free to go to www.bretthall.org and follow the links that are right there to Patreon, for example. But until next time, bye-bye.